Hey, um, really excited about this morning. You know, we, two weeks ago, we launched this new conversation that we're having as a church called This Is Your Permission Slip. And uh, my observation as someone who's grown up in church, as someone who's been following Jesus for nearly 25 years, as someone who's been uh, in paid ministry for nearly 20 years, is that too many people, both churched people and unchurched people, have this wrong idea of who God is. And I said last week, unfortunately, wrong information doesn't autocorrect. Your text messages might when you spell something wrong, but wrong information about God doesn't autocorrect. We actually need to make sure that we expose ourselves, first of all, to great teaching, biblical teaching, true north teaching, not I've heard, uh, they say, but what does God say about God? And make sure that we pursue and learn ourselves. And one of the things, the big idea around this conversation is that following Jesus is not a prison sentence. It's a permission slip. It's not about what we can't do. It's about what he has done. And because of what Jesus has done, what he calls us to do. There's a permission slip. There's, a, there, there, there's something that God wants us to do. Um, I heard one leader say yesterday, one of the podcasts I was listening to yesterday morning, too many people have held the Bible up as a manuscript for conformity when it's actually intended as a manifesto for creativity, for us to become who God's called us to be and live an expansive life and not about what we can't do and what we shouldn't do. You can listen to the podcast from the last two weeks if you've not uh, been here for one or both of those, particularly if you're here for the first time. We've put all these messages online and uh, you can access them 24-7. 365. And what I want to do today is I want to look at three chapters of a pretty prominent guy from the Bible, a guy named David. I want to look at three chapters from his life. He lived a very, very, very colorful and adventurous life. And there's a whole lot of stuff we could talk about David. I want to just look at three things around his life. What's interesting to me, though, is towards the end of his life, when he'd lived this roller coaster of circumstances, been at the lowest of the lowest valleys and the highest of the highest mountaintops. He'd been in, in, in times in his life where he'd been pursued by the king and, and, and had to hide in caves uh, for fear of his life. Let me, let me show you one of the things that he wrote towards the end of his life, almost like on reflection, you know, David's closing memoirs. But me, he caught, talking about God, reached all the way from sky to sea. He pulled me out of that ocean of hate, that enemy chaos, the void in which I was drowning. They hit me when I was down. Now, just push pause there for a moment. Every one of us, I I can say this, with absolute confidence, every one of us have experienced our own version of this. Been caught in seasons and circumstances that are, that are chaotic. When, when injustice has come our way, when, when things have spiraled out of our control. Has anyone ever had any of those things happen to them? Yeah, okay. You and everyone else, maybe not the boy in the bubble, but every one of us that live in real world, this is uh, maybe some of you, and, 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 and this is my prayer today, if you're in the midst of any of this, 
I'm incredibly confident God's got a word for you today. A word of encouragement, a word of permission about what he would have you do in the midst of this. And wouldn't it be incredible? Wouldn't it be incredible for each and every one of us to be able to look back on circumstances that we've been in and better still, to actually towards our twilight years, to not have forgotten all of the things that have happened bad in our lives. They're not forgotten about them, but to be able to look back and say, but God stuck by me. He stood me up in a wide open field. I stood there saved, surprised to be loved. Some of you have a wide open field just over the horizon of your current circumstances right here, right now. And I'm going to share some thoughts that are going to give you permission to actually Pursue that, that God's actually going to lead you into that place. But how many of you would love in your twilight years to be able to look back on a faithful God and be able to say, God stood me up in a wide open field. Would that be a great, I love the imagery of that. I just stood me up in a wide open field, not a prison sentence, a permission slip. Each of the three scenes or chapters around David's life, I'm, I'm going to use a symbol. Most of us are visual learners, statistically. And so first symbol I want to give you and want to put in front of you is, is a horn. Now, <laughs> we don't get this these days. This is not a, you know, I don't know, many of you have one of these in your homes. Probably not. But back in the day, in David's period, One of the uses for this would be that a prophet, someone called to speak God's word, speak God's truth in a setting or to a people, would would have one of these. And and God would appoint one of the prophets in a a time and in a place to to fill it up with oil, uh, extra virgin, first cold pressed, of course, and and go and find somebody who God wanted to actually appoint and anoint as a king. Now, anoint's a bit of a churchy word, but technically it just kind of means, we don't use that now, but if you've seen some of you, Queen Elizabeth, who was, you know, made queen like, I don't know, 300 years ago or something, uh, some of us expect in the future, uh, Regan, I know you've got uh, some money down on this, uh, whether they're uh, Charles or, uh, or uh, uh, what's his face, William's going to be next, but anyway. I'm not going to get into that this morning, the royal row, but, um, but, but we have a coronation now. You know, with the, the, back in these days, was, there was a, an appointment and an anointing. They would, they, the, the prophet would take this horn, you see a little, little stopper, a little cork at the end, and, and they would uncork that, and they would pour the, the oil over the head of the appointed king. And, and the oil symbolized a fresh start, okay, that this was a new king, and, 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 and God was giving him a fresh start. Well, in one point in history, the prophet that God tapped was a guy named Samuel. And God said to Samuel, I want you to go to Saul, this guy Saul, this big king looking dude. And go and appoint him, take your horn and anoint him with the oil to make him king. What's interesting, and, and to make him king over Israel. What's interesting is God actually didn't want them to have a king at all. God wanted to be their king. But in disobedience to God's will and God's purposes, the people took it upon themselves to kind of vote Saul as their king and not God as their king. 
And what's interesting about that is God sometimes actually gives us permission to do or to have things that he doesn't want us to do or have. Because some of us are so flippin' thick that it's only until we get what we think we want that God doesn't want that we realize, oh, whoops, bad choice. And I'll come back to that. So Samuel went and he anointed Saul king and Saul was this uh, king for a period of time. After a, a, a period though, Saul started to lose the plot a little. Started to get, become very irrational, and very paranoid. And God decided that Saul was no longer the man for the job. And tapped Samuel, who'd been Saul's mentor, to go and find and anoint and appoint another king. And Samuel was, was pretty disappointed. And you should be able to relate to this because... Most of you, I'm sure, have you ever had someone that you've been investing in and then they, they just, the whole thing just blows up and, and it's like, what a waste of, you know, right? Incredibly challenging because you, you, we invest in people because we want to see them thrive. And when they don't, it's, it, there's something in us that, that, that breaks. And uh, that was true for Samuel. And Samuel had been told by God, I want you to leave Saul because I've got a new king, a better king, that I want you to go and appoint and anoint. And Samuel was really, really depressed. <laughs> and uh, God, being the straight shooter that he is, addressed Samuel. And he said, So how long are you going to mope over Saul? You know I've rejected him as king over Israel, so fill your flask with anointing oil and get going. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've spotted the very king I want among his sons. Some of you have had something in your life that's died. It's over. And instead of picking up your horn, filling it with fresh oil, going after the new promise. Some of you are still moping over what was lost. And we're never going to reach forward to the new and better promise of God while we're hanging on to the promise that's dead in our rearview mirror. If we spend too much time looking at what was, we not only miss what is, we also miss what could be. We've got to actually let go of the Saul to move on to the David. And here's the criteria. How do we know which things to let go of and which things to hold on to? Criteria that, 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 that I use is if you've got no control over it, you've done everything, you've invested into Saul, and, and yet, despite your best efforts, best intentions, best everything, best prayers, it's over. You've got no control over that. Then, then, then you have permission to leave that behind and permission to pick up your horn 
fill it with oil and get going. That God's got a fresh, new and better promise for you. But we're not meant to leave everything behind. The next image is that of a sword. (coughs) I thought of bringing one up here today, but I've actually been bringing quite a few objects up here over the recent weeks that can be used as weapons. I didn't want to, I didn't want to kind of get a reputation. Coffee's about as big a weapon as I brought up here today. That one's for you, Sam. Happy birthday. (coughs) So now I want to fast forward to a decade. So, 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 so Samuel had, 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 had picked up his horn, filled it with oil and gone to Jesse and gone to find the new and better king that God had in mind. And it turned out to be a guy named David, who, by the way, was the least likely candidate in people's eyes, but the number one draft pick in God's eyes. There's a whole other thing, and I haven't got time to talk too much about that. But pick up the story 10 years after Samuel slash God had anointed David as king, but actually David wasn't yet the king. Saul was still around. And in fact, Saul, his paranoia had gone to a new level because he'd, he'd now got the, the, the email that God had actually pushed him out and was going to bring in a new and better king. And so Saul decided that he was going to kind of arm wrestle God over this one and, and started pursuing David. And so David formed a little posse, 600 men, and uh, both for protection you know, from Saul and this kind of survival thing. And they would hide in caves and, and like a little sort of special ops unit. Um, and these men were from a town called Ziklag. Okay? One particular moment in history, David and his 600 men returned to this town where the men had come from, only to find out that, that, that uh, bandits had come to the town of Ziklag, burnt it to the ground, completely destroyed it, and stolen the, the women, the, the, the wives, and the children, and, uh, and raided them and, and taken them on. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine what that might have felt like for those 600 men. You know, their hometown raised to the ground. It's a funny use of the word raised in the English language. Uh, anyway, it's a whole other thing. Um, and stolen your, your wives and, and your children. And those 600 men reacted in two ways. I think both quite, quite appropriate. The first is that they, they literally cried and grieved till they could grieve no more. You know, you... You remember that? You know that feeling? Like you, you've run out of snot. You have grieved so much. You know, the tear ducts are dry. You, you, you know, your heart, your, your chest is, is sore. From, they, they got to that point, um, which is fair enough. And the second reaction they had is, is they decided, or well, they started talking about whether they would actually turn on David because they resented him for taking them away and leaving their hometown and their wives and their children defenseless. defenseless, And they blamed David. And so so now, not only did David have Saul chasing him, (laughs) he had the 600 men who he recruited to protect him from Saul, now considering plotting to kill him as well. It's a bad day if you're David. You ever have those days where you just 
feel like you literally run into a brick wall? Literally standing at the end of a dead end street looking the wrong way and, and, and reversing is not an option either. What do you do? What, what, what do we do? We, we, we have them. What do we do? Relationship looks like it's and kids look like they run away from following Jesus. Jobs looks like it's finished. These are not good days and, and no one wants to make light of them. <laughs> we can learn something from David. David did two things. And he did them in the right order too, by the way. The first thing he did is he strengthened himself with trust in his God. And sometimes we don't do that. We, we decide that we're going to be the strong ones. We're going to take this situation on with our own bare hands. And, and uh, it doesn't work when it's beyond your capacity. It doesn't work if we try to take it on because it's beyond our capacity. So first of all, stop. Remind ourselves that God is bigger than our circumstances. Remind ourselves that God's on our side. Remind ourselves that God's promises endure. God's faithfulness, God's character, God's love endures. And so David did that. And then he ordered Abiathar, the priest, the son of Abimelech. Now, in those days, when you wanted to talk to God, you went through a priest. Jesus now is our high priest, and so we can actually go direct to God these days. Thank goodness for that. Bring me the ephod. So I can consult God. So Abiathar brought it to David. And then David prayed to God, Shall I go after these raiders? Can I catch them? The answer came, Go after them! Exclamation mark. Yes, you'll catch them! Exclamation mark. Yes, you'll make the rescue! Exclamation mark. There's some pretty good three sentences to be now equipped with. When your back is to the wall, when it looks like your life is being threatened, by the very men who, who, who you'd gathered to protect you. Well, David went, he and the 600 men with him, and they arrived at, Brook, at the brook Besor, where some of them dropped out. You're going to go after some of the stolen promises of God, and you're going to have people around you who aren't going to understand, who are going to be your cheerleaders when you leave the start line, but not necessarily continue to cheer you on, continue to understand you, continue to support and encourage you. They'll drop out and wonder why you haven't dropped out. Stay tuned. David and 400 men kept up the pursuit, but 200 of them were too fatigued to cross the brook Besor and stayed there. It's so important for us to have people in our lives who are going to stick with us closer than a brother. The reason we have Elevate groups is not because any of us are looking for more things to fill our schedules with. It's because this doesn't get deep-spirited friendships developed. It just doesn't. And so we create another environment as well as our live experiences. This is critical, which we call elevate groups. Do life together. So when one of us has had a promise stolen, we're, not, we're going to go with them. And not only go with them, we're not going to be the first 200 to drop out or the second 200 to drop out. We're going to keep going. David, because here's the thing. David had been promised by God that if he pursues the raiders, he will get this back. It was a done deal at the, at the, at the second of the promise. Right? 
the battle had already been won. The, the second God said, it's, it's, it's won. The rest was just kind of, you know, showing everyone else. <laughs> David rescued everything the Amalekites had taken. And he rescued his two wives. I don't have time to <laughs> talk about what that's all about. Although, yes, some parts of the Bible were based in Tasmania. Um, <clears throat> nothing and no one was missing. Young or old, son or daughter, plunder or whatever. They thought that everything was finished. Everything was destroyed. Everything was taken. God said, go after it and get it back. And, 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 and uh, not most of it. Nothing and no one was missing. David recovered the whole lot. He herded the sheep and cattle before them, and they all shouted David's plunder. In the King James version of the Bible, it says David's booty. But there's a reason we don't use that version anymore, because that word means something else now. <laughs> sometimes God gives you permission to fill your horn with oil, but sometimes God gives you permission to draw your sword. One of my best friends is a guy uh, named Charlie, lives just outside of Los Angeles. Charlie, uh, at the age of 17, he knew God had given him a promise that he was going to be a business leader, be a captain of industry one day. And uh, at the time when God gave him the promise, he was working on the loading dock of his uh, local supermarket, filling crates into trucks and pulling crates out of trucks. When that's your job, it doesn't look like you're going to become a captain of industry to anybody on the outside. It looks like you're going to be working minimum wage. And you know. Well, through his 20s, Charlie found favor with business people and was trained by some of the best salespeople uh, going. And uh, in his early 30s, he, he, he started a business. He, he actually formed a, a partnership with a guy based in Chicago. They started a business together. Within two years of starting that business, my buddy Charlie was taking home like salary, not the business making the profits, him actually physically getting paid as, as the co-owner of this business, $250,000 a month. Right? When God's told you you're going to become a captain of industry age 17 and you're out in the loading dock packing and unpacking crates of fruit and vegetables, and then you're in your early 30s, making $250,000 a month. Needless to say, his wife didn't have to work. She chose to, just for the record. But you know what I'm saying. It's not a bad wage. And uh, shortly after, in fact, it was around that time, we, we holidayed with them in Italy. And uh, they got back from the trip with us to find out that the business partner in Chicago had been siphoning funds off. And uh, to the point where he basically drained the entire accounts of the business. And uh, they had to shut the business down. And uh, my buddy Charlie weighed things up and determined that it was actually going to be far too expensive to pursue this guy in court than in, in, to try and recover the business in, in its previous form. And so he let it go. But he never let go of the promise. Now, he went back into a, just a regular sales job with a regular company, you know, several rungs down the food chain. But he drew his sword. And after a couple of years of being back in the rank and file 
of sales. He, he started his own business, this time <laughs> not in partnership with anybody from Chicago. A lot of Italians there explains a lot. <clears throat> Though this guy was Greek, which, you know. Um, sometimes we've got permission to draw our sword and go and chase what the devil has tried to steal from us. Fill your horn and move on when you can't do anything about it. But when the devil has stolen something, God gives us permission to draw our sword and go get it back. And that sounds lovely. I know. We, we can walk out of here feeling 10 feet tall. Oh, man, when the devil steals something from us, God gives us permission to, to go and draw our sword and, and, and get it back. <sighs> yeah, that'll preach. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that too many of us don't actually draw our sword. We have one. We just don't draw it. <clears throat> I want to introduce you to Ricky Henderson. Now, if you're American, you'd know Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson was a major league baseball player. He's now made it into the Hall of Fame. He played for the Oakland Athletics, or the Oakland A's, as they're kind of known for. And, 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 and uh, uh, his big kind of thing was that he's stolen the most bases in the history of baseball. Now, here, he's actually literally stealing a base um, uh, and, and, and caught red-handed, but... But this was when he stole his 939th base, which was a new Major League Baseball record. But early on in his career, the Oakland A's had drafted him and paid what was then a, a pretty substantial amount of money. It was a million dollars. And back in those days, you didn't do an electronic transfer. You actually, you actually posted them a check. So the Oakland A's posted Ricky Henderson a check for a million dollars, his fee uh, his contract. And a couple of months went by and the finance department of the Oakland A's had discovered that this check had never been actually cashed. And so they, they, they rang up Ricky and, hey, Ricky, you know, did you get that check we sent you? million bucks? He's, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was incredible, like amazing. And they said, uh, so uh, what have you done with that? He's like, man, it was a million dollar check. I went out, I bought a frame. I put it in the frame. It's on the wall. I'm sitting here staring at it right now. They're like, Ricky, that, that check's not worth a million bucks sitting in the frame. It's only worth a million bucks when you take it out of the frame and put it to use. Paul describes the word of God as a sword. The metaphor he uses is a sword. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes one step beyond that and says that the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. And as much as we can have a chuckle about Ricky Henderson putting a million-dollar check in a frame and sticking it on the wall, one of the challenges we need to take on is we need to understand that we've got access to a sword. But swords have no power in their scabbard. Bibles have no power collecting dust on a shelf or taking up storage space on an app on your smart device. 
And you'd expect me to say that. I'm paid to say that. Read your Bible more, you worthless, you know. If you don't, God will be upset. And then you go and you, you kind of get kick-started, you know, tomorrow morning, set the alarm 15 minutes early. I'm going to read my Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tuesday, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wednesday, ah, snooze, you know. Thursday, nothing. I haven't set the alarm Thursday. Flip, I'm still exhausted from Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> and, then, and then the prevailing emotion moves from motivation to, to not upset God to, to guilt that we now have upset God. We don't preach that here. That's not the message. The message is, guys, <laughs> we've got access to a sword that God has actually placed in our hands. Why wouldn't we want to grab that? Why wouldn't we want to take hold of that? Why wouldn't we want to use that? Especially if you go and chase down a raiding army who has stolen something from you barehanded, guess what? You're going to get killed. God says, take the sword. Pull it. So, oh, yeah, I read this, uh, I read this book um, about um, uh, six steps to, to, to keeping your dream alive. Sure, great. Better than, you know. But if you spend more time reading books about six ways to keep your dream alive and not reading the Bible, it's like, okay, you might get partway across the brook. You might even come face to face with the people that have stolen that thing from you. But guys, I'm here to tell you, it's not as powerful as the sword that God has given us access to. How are we doing? Anybody getting an idea? Some of you have permission to fill your horn with oil and get going. Some of you have permission to draw your sword and go and chase what it is that's been stolen from you. I could finish there. I mean, that's a pretty solid two-point message right there. And I think yeah, quite a few of us would, would, would fall into one or the other of those categories. Or if you're not currently in that situation, this is kind of being forearmed to know what to do when you get to that situation. But I don't want to leave it there. I want to finish with one more scene from David's life. And this scene is symbolized by a robe. David had been victorious. He was now the king. He was now operating as the king. He'd been incredibly uh, successful uh, doing what God's called him to do. And what can happen to so many people who are successful is, is that complacency can start to set in. And you can start to kind of just put it in cruise control. Go on Memory and not vision. If you're fueled more by memory than vision, by the way, it's, all, it's already the beginning of game over. You should operate out of imagination, not memory. That's another message for another time. I'm giving you lots of free this morning. It's pretty good, eh? So instead of being out at war, like God had said to him, to, to David stayed at home. And he was at home one day and he peered out over the rooftops and saw this uh, hot uh, chiquita there uh, uh, named Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was taking a bath. What? It's true. I even said it in an English accent. So you, what? Oh, really? Didn't really? Manchester? No. Even worse, really? Liverpool? No. 
Beth, that's what I said. Like northern, like, you know, yeah, peasant English, not London English, Regan. Ew. <laughs> so, now, now, spoiler alert. If David could have edited his biography, he may have actually edited this chapter out, but it's in there. And uh, David, being the king, could have anything he wanted, so he ordered his men to go and get Bathsheba and bring her to him. And uh, he had sex with her. He got her pregnant. She was actually married to somebody else. In fact, she, he, she was married to one of his soldiers who were out fighting on the battleground where David was meant to be as well. Got her pregnant. And so when actually the, the, the husband of Bathsheba came back, uh, David, you know, he didn't want to be sprung and he didn't want to have his, 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 uh, his uh, reputation as the king tarnished. So he ordered for Bathsheba's husband to be, to be, to be killed. And so that happened. And... Um, God wasn't pleased with David. In fact, you read the next sentence in the Bible and it says God wasn't pleased with David. One of the things I like about God is even when he's not pleased with us, he doesn't give up on us. God's not driven by circumstance. He's driven by love. He's driven by faithfulness. He's driven by character. So God was not pleased with David, but pursued him just the same. And he actually sent a prophet named Nathan to go and confront David. And the prophet on God's behalf told David that that God was going to actually take his wives from him and was actually going to cause that child to die. And I I don't completely understand how or why God would do that. Uh, what's also important to understand is, is God, through the prophet Nathan, told David that he'd forgiven him. One thing I can take away from that little exchange is when we screw up, when we do things that God's not pleased with, God will still forgive us. And yet often there are still consequences that we have to work with with and work through, right? It's one of the very reasons God puts up some stuff in place in the first place that if we obeyed it, we wouldn't have to live with the negative consequences because we wouldn't have done the wrong thing in the first place, but we do the wrong thing. God still forgives us, but sometimes we think, well, if God's forgiven me, why is life still so difficult? If God's forgiven me for mishandling my money, why am I still in debt? If God's forgiving me for, for not loving my spouse like I should have, how come we're still having some tension? If God's... Because... Because there are still consequences to our actions that will, with God, take time to restore and redeem and resolve. Forgiveness is instantaneous, but often the outworking of consequences is a process. So David hears this news about this baby that was going to die, and he began fasting, and he refused to wash, and, and he, he appeared to his, his, uh, his closest people to have gone a little bit off the deep end, but he was, he, was, he was trying to put himself in a position. The reason that we fast is we, is we want to demonstrate to God that the thing that we are fasting for is more important than food to us. I want this child of mine to survive more than I want lunch. He asked God to have mercy, and David noticed that the servants were whispering behind his back, 
and realized the boy must have died. And he asked the servants, is the boy dead? Yeah, they answered, he's dead. Well, David got up from the floor, washed his face, combed his hair and put on a fresh change of clothes. And then he went into the sanctuary and worshipped. And then he came home and asked for something to eat. And they set it before him and he ate. His servants asked him, what's going on with you? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept and stayed up all night. But now that he's dead, you get up and eat. While the child was alive, he said, I fasted and wept, thinking God might have mercy on me and the child would live. But now that he's dead, why fast? Can I bring him back now? I can go to him, but he can't come to me. David went and comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and when he slept with her, they conceived a son. And when he was born, they named him Solomon. For those of you that know a bit of the story, you know that Solomon went on to become an even better king than David. The reason I, I wanted to finish with this story from David's life I don't want you to put your hand up, but I just want you to think about this for a moment. Have you ever done something that's caused shame for you and or someone else? Have you ever done something, messed up, sinned is the churchy word, that's had negative consequences on on other people? I'm pretty sure all of us have, okay? We're going to do a group confession priest, Father Mark, you know. But, but just think about that. And, and, and the reason I want you to think about that is not to relive it and, and replay the, 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 the not very highlight reel of that situation. But I want you to think about that because, because some people get stuck there. Some people, when they trip up or, or, because of their own foolishness and stupidity, don't get up off the ground again. And it's game over. And, 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 and you need to know that when those things happen, if you ask God to forgive you, he'll forgive you. And because he forgives you, you have permission to get up. You have permission to go and wash that sin. Well, he washes the sin away. You have permission to make a fresh start. Yes, there may still be some consequences that will take some time, but you and I, when we mess up, when we do things that hurt other people, when we sin, when we cause shame upon ourselves and other people, we ask God's forgiveness. We have permission to make a brand new start, to put on the robe. And actually the churchy word is the robe of righteousness. The robe of righteousness is this symbolic picture of the fact that when we ask God's forgiveness, in fact, when we ask God's forgiveness and ask Jesus to be our Lord of our life, he washes all of our sins away. He gives us a brand new start and he puts on this robe of righteousness is the, is the visual that, that, that now when God looks at us, he doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see the sinner. He doesn't see the past. He sees this robe of righteousness. He sees this victory. He sees that we are now sons and daughters of a king wearing a robe, not a robe that we earned, a robe that Jesus earned. It's called the great exchange. Jesus took our place. He took the punishment. We get to wear the robe. We don't need to just lie down in the dirt. We have permission to put on the robe. 
Nothing that we do ever changes who God is. Did you get that? I don't think some of you are as excited about this as God is right now. So I'm going to say it again. Nothing you do changes who God is. Right? You with me? You're also white. I mean, guys, we need more black people here. Like, yeah, amen. Preach. Come on. I know Zimbabwe is a different thing. But, um, and let me tell you one more thing. Nothing you or I do ever overwrites what Jesus has done. Some of you right now, you need to take hold of that robe for the very first time. This great exchange that Jesus died in your place, that Jesus actually wants to forgive you of your sins, that Jesus actually wants to give you a brand new start. Some of you, that's breaking news. Some of you have never actually made that decision, have actually taken that step. Well, we're giving you an opportunity right now to make that decision, to say, Jesus, yeah, I know I've done some things wrong. I know I've actually not walked following you and I've actually done some things that you're not pleased with. This morning's a reminder or news to you that you have permission to say to Jesus, pick me up, wash me clean, put on this robe of righteousness and let my life be one that stands in a wide open field in a relationship with God. If you've never done that, if you've never made that decision right now, right now, I want you to put your hand up and say, yeah, that's me this morning. Awesome. Who else? Okay, come on. Who else? You just don't want to give this microphone up before you've taken that opportunity. If you've never made that decision to say, yeah, you know, I've never asked Jesus to be my Lord. Just say, Yes to him right now. Put your hand up and then we're going to pray. Let's pray. Say these words after me. I want everyone to say these words. Dear Jesus, thank you for taking my place. Thank you for taking on my sins. For giving me a brand new start. And I decide... Right now, washed clean by your blood to take a hold of the robe of righteousness and to live worthy of that calling from this day forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How about we celebrate for that person that lifts their hand and sing?